You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast and event series hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. In today's episode, we have the amazing Dr. Christopher Empton, an associate professor of science education at Teachers College in Columbia University and an author of a New York Times bestseller. Enjoy the show. So I appreciate you being part of this conversation. You have done some work with us, as I understand, with Patrice Relaford and others, and you know Tony and others, I imagine, from... I, I I got a whole crew of fam out there. Tony and him, I love, man. He's such a good dude. It's so funny because I've done maybe like four things with people in the Minneapolis area. And it's just like, you know, folks, folks just reach out. And I'm just so thankful. Folks just have a really good spirit there. So somehow I find myself always coming back to you guys. I don't know what it is. Uh, Minnesota <laughs> nice acting right, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, Patrice made the recommendation um, that I reach out to you for this podcast. And part of the podcast um, goal is to really like elevate issues that our community is faced with and just really be in discussion with like people in the work that are dealing with issues that our communities are faced with and with issues that we're trying to solve collectively. We just put out a new grant round at the Minneapolis Foundation and through the, the, the summit that you were part of with our young people and then through some of the other work that we've done with the University of Minnesota with educators we basically came up with a new grant round that really focuses a lot on the culture, right? Like bringing in the voices of young people and young people saying basically like, yo, we're not in an environment that's like conducive to how we learn. We don't have relationships with people. They don't value us. Mm. And like, you know, if you want to change education, you need to change all of the context that we're in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I, when I looked at um, sort of the work that you've been leading, it became really important for me to not just put out grant dollars to those that are able to compete for those dollars and receive those dollars because we know that dollars are not enough, but for us to really elevate what is happening in the classroom. So, yeah. you know, I want you to just um, start out and give us an overview of, of who you are and what your work in- includes. And then I want to just talk about like what is happening in our classroom. So could you introduce yourself? Yeah. So um, what up, everyone? My name is Chris Emden. Um, currently, my sort of main gig is that I'm a professor of science and education at Teachers College at Columbia University. At that institution, I am also the associate director of an institute, the Institute for Urban and Minority Education. Um, I am uh, alumni Hutchins Fellow and um, Hip Hop Archive Fellow at the Hutchins Center at Harvard University. Um, and you know, I'm, a, I'm an educator at the end of the day. And I see myself as a person who is able to navigate multiple worlds and glean from those worlds a perspective on where we have been, where we are, and we poss- where possibly we may go as it relates to education. Um, I'm a firm believer in a radical perspective of teaching and learning radical in the sense of like an Angel Kyoto Williams take on the root, like getting to the root of it, opening up space to dig into the root and then reimagining like future thinking. So um, yeah, that, that, that's me. So I'm, I'm looking at you and our, and our listeners might go and look at you. So here you are at like our elite institutions that haven't always really been for us. And so you are, um, you know, not just kind of breaking the, the visual stereotypes of who belongs where, but opening up doors for our young people. I was reminded as you were talking of, um, I used to run a nonprofit and um, 
we had brought them in, in relationship with Target, our young students, right, Target. And so they brought some of their African-American leaders uh, to the table. And one of the, the guys said, yo, you know, like I went to school at, at Harvard, like this is for you. And one of our Latino students, like afterwards in our debrief said, I didn't know that there were Black people that were allowed to go to, Har- to Harvard. And um, I remember thinking, well, Barack Obama, <laughs> like, right, like our president, right? But thinking about just the importance of that. So I want to just acknowledge that we still have young people that don't even um, have access or an ability to vision where they belong. Um, and so I appreciate the visibility of your work and, and showing them that this is a place of belonging for them too. Yo, that point is so fire, like in many ways, right? Because I think it's, it's about representation and the absence of it. It's fine. That's, that's a legitimate point. We've heard that before. And, um, you know, and, and, and if young folks are given opportunities to see themselves in certain spaces, then a path towards a possible future might open up. And, and so when people hear that, they do things like what you did, which is an amazing response, right? For them to have this, this moment. This is what pains me. What are the conditions in the spaces that's supposed to activate the imagination that inhibits young folks from being able to see those things, right? And, and, and so, and how is it not baked into the structure of schooling where not just representation, but active participation is part of the ballgame? Because guess what? There's a young person in the school right now who has been to Harvard 12 times over the course of the academic career have walked on that campus, been on that campus, talked to folks, they showed up at Columbia, they've had meetings with professors, they showed up from when they were 14, so from four to 14 to 24, so that by virtue of just their existence, they don't see that world as foreign to who they are. And then most importantly for me, it's not just about seeing a black person or a brown person that says, hey, by the way, I went to this school and I'm there, it's also seeing a black and brown person that has a certain embeddedness in community, despite the fact that they are in these spaces, right? Because oftentimes what we have is, you know, we have black folks who, you know, they skin folk and kin folk enter into spaces and don't rep where they came from. And so when young folks see those folks, it's like, yeah, I see them, but he's not me, right? Like I see him, but it's a person who's had their authentic selves stripped away from who they are and the pursuance of an identity that's other than the hood I come from. So much more important than representation is a certain representation that's attached to embeddedness. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you know, black, black lives matter. Yes, black swag matters as well. And, and holding those things concurrently in high esteem so that young folks can, can not just imagine, but be like, could you imagine if like, yo, he says something that I would say. Now, I don't, now, I don't, I don't just see him as something I could aspire to. I see this person as an extension of me. When a person becomes an extension of me, my world opens up, my worldview opens up. And I think, you know, my work in teaching and learning, it's, it's as much about introducing young folks to content areas, but it's about expanding our worldview. Yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, I just took my glasses off because I was feeling like, hey, man, on all of that. And so I think that when, um, when we have young people that see others in their community that they, they, they are not relating to, right, because they have left behind or whatever those things are, they, they still don't see that uh, for them, right? And so when you say that, um, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to articulate not very well right now is that 
they don't want to have to leave pieces of themselves behind, right? They want to stay true to who they are in their community. And they don't want the option, right, that's been presented that in order for you to be successful means that you still can't maintain yourself. It's the false dichotomies that are constructed by the system of education that makes young folks believe that their authentic selves are inherently in opposition to being academic and intellectual selves. Like that's the thing. And so, it, and it's a, it's a completely false dichotomy because if you engage with these young folks in any arena outside of traditional schooling, you find the skill sets that can help, that are that, like they're inherently equipped to be successful anywhere. Like in my work, I talk about these things I call science-mindedness skills. So I'm a science educator, um, anthrobiochemist by training. And I found in the world of science, there are these particular skills that those who've been able to shift the world of science just have, like just by virtue of existence. So for example, being anti-authoritarian, like I'm gonna ask questions to authority and make sense of things. Keen observation, deeply reflective, thinking in metaphor and analogy, like, yo, the structure of aromatic compounds could not have been developed unless this dude Kakuli was like, yo, I'm imagining this snake biting his own tail. That's wild, son, like, that's creative. Einstein was like, yo, imagine if I was chilling next to this light beam in outer space and it's riding things out and I tell a story about that and calculate things. So like all these creative skills, innovative skills, questioning skills that are the essence of scientific innovation, I find them in hip hop artists. Like I'm creative and reflective, observing the environment, putting words together, metaphor, analogy. And I'm like, yo fam, if you could write bars, you could be a nuclear physicist. And the, the issue then becomes, not that I'm disparaging writing bars, like I still like to rhyme myself, I still feel like I got bars, but none of them disparaging the art or the, or the act of writing bars, the notion that I have more options. Like this is the thing, like the robbery of options to our babies. Like if you chose to be an MC because that's where your heart speaks, man, be the dopest MC you can be. But if you have the skill set to be anything else and you're like, yo, I like that more than MCing, I just want you to have the option to be your fully actualized self. And the fact that we have a system of education that robs young folks of the opportunity to see the, the, the bevy of options they have to be excellent. Like, that's why I do my work. Like, that's why I do Science Genius. That's why I do Hip Hop Ed. That's why I'm writing Rashademic. It's about the merging of multiple selves and the pursuance of a future not yet realized, but is right before us. Yeah, so my, my um, I did a podcast uh, and talked with Mike Vick, Michael Vick, right? So, you know, he comes from Newport News, right? He's an athlete. We're always telling young people, like, you know, that's cool that you're, like, on the field, but, like, you need to pay attention, right? The likelihood of you being successful, so you need to pay attention to this. And it is presented as though it's an option, yeah. right? It's presented that if you're an athlete and you're good, that means you're not smart and you're not serious about your academics, right? And so I was talking to him about, like, my son played D1 football, and the number of conversations I had to intervene on to say, stop snatching his dream. Yes. Tell him that, that it's unlikely for him to make it. Let him dream because that dream is going to get him to college. It's going to get college paid for. It's going to have him shooting bigger and, and bolder than what you have envisioned for him. And so why are we doing that, right? So it, it feeds into what you're saying. You could be, you know, yourself. You can be smart. You can be in the halls of our whitest institutions and make a tremendous difference. Absolutely. And it's emotional violence. And it's emotional violence that's not only imposed by institutions or white folks or political structures. I think it's all of those things. But sometimes, oftentimes, 
most imposed by those who are in close proximity to young folks because they themselves have had their dreams denied. They themselves have had opportunities denied. And so they, 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 they look at young folks as, as almost, you ever hear the phrase like broken people break people? Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. Like literally what we have in our communities is this abusive relationship where folks who've been broken by institutions enter into institutions and then break young people. And they look at that emotional violence that they impose on young folks as almost a rite of passage for success. Like, you know, if I can break you enough, then you graduate, yay. But what's the sense of graduation when there's no inspiration? Like there's no thought of possibility beyond that. And I think that we collectively as a community have to do some collective healing work to say that our attachment to systems that tell us that they are the only ones that can grant us affirmation, value, success, and that those things cannot be created by ourselves. Like even the notion of like wealth, right? Yeah. There's this, this perception that wealth is monetary. Listen, we all like to get the bag. We all need to get what we're worth. If I'm giving my time to something, it's almost like if I'm giving my time to something, you honor me by saying, I think you deserve this, yes. But the blind pursuit of capital at the expense of humanity is, 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 is the underlying thing that robs us of, of our worth. Listen, for me, knowledge itself is wealth. Yeah. I go into any space, and this is not to brag, but I also like, I also think it's important for us to share this stuff for folks to hear because this notion of like blackness needs to be humble is kind of what got us where we are. Like we ain't supposed to stunt. You're not supposed to think highly of yourself. You're supposed to just lowly and go and, and whatever. Like, nah, me, I got knowledge of self. It's the ultimate wealth. I hang my head up high and my shoulders back and know that by virtue of coming from Brooklyn and the Bronx and coming through the hood to the halls of academia, I got gifts other folks ain't got. And my wealth is internal. And that will manifest itself in monetary wealth when the season is for it to come. And that young folks need to understand that early. Like, yo, if you know you, if you know who you are, you know how dope you are, you know what, you know what, like, you know what coming from, like, this community means? You know Purple Rain that changed the whole world is down the block from you, my G? Like, do you know the producers in this community that have changed the world? So by virtue of growing up in this world, you got that in you, like your jewels, your diamonds is in. When you understand that, the glow up is, is inevitable. And I think schools, I think schools, here's the thing, sis, I think schools have to reimagine what they think of as curriculum to incorporate knowledge of self as just as essential as math or English or social studies, if not more essential. Okay, so there's, I'm going to go two different directions. I hope I am not going backwards, but I'm going to go back to this whole idea of uh, the people that are most proximate to them because there are stories that you and I automatically know exist that our, our listeners may not know, mm-hmm. right? So I think about the young people that um, uh, envision going off to school away from their community mm-hmm. and their families say, just, get, just go get your generals at the local community college because... You know, we just want to make sure you're safe. That's too far away. You're going to be by yourself. Like you're going to come back and not, you're not going to be like us no more. Mm. You know, it's, it's trauma, man. Trauma gets manifested in various ways. Listen, no adult shall rob young person of the opportunity to activate their imagination. 
If your vision sees you beyond the local space, our job is to equip them with the tools to be successful in those space, concurrently with a preparedness for what's to come. I think part of the challenge is this, like, you know, a lot of our babies dream of growing, going away, but they have this false notion of what going away looks like. And they don't have folks in their circle to make them aware of what they should be prepared for, like the traps. Like sometimes you go away, it's a setup. For example, young folks go away to school, get a credit card. Them cats is predators right on campus, particularly for black and brown bodies, where we know assault on our finances is a chief piece of how we could never get fun under this. Like, you know, your mama got a building and name you for. So these are things that our communities are dealing with. You go, you get your, no one told you this, right? You, so you go, you get your credit card. You run up your credit card. You're ruining your credit. Then you could have got a job. You're like, nah, I ain't gonna get this, this job on campus. I'm gonna get this, um, I'm gonna just take out this loan because they're gonna take care of that. Them cats want their loan money back. You go into the space, you have imposter syndrome. You feel like, yo, I'm prepared for this. So now your self-doubt inhibits you from being successful in the school. You're like, who can I hang out with? I'm just gonna do social clubs. You get too social. Now, so like they're, they're, the dream of going away is a beautiful dream if you're prepared for what the landscape is of where you're dreaming to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that we have to inform young folks. Now, on the other hand, I'm gonna say something that I don't know if you're gonna agree with, sis, but I'm gonna say it. If I stay local and I got the and I got the playbook, I could also change the game. Like, look, I go to I go to community college, for example. I ball out all A's, smash it, because it's local, it's close. Now you I'm not close, so I could be close to my folks at home. I am close because I'm playing the long game. The long game is I stay at the crib, I can stay with my moms and them, I ain't gotta get much tuition. The tuition here is dumb low, work pay that off, no student loans. I smash this out for these two years and get this associates. They paying for my bachelor's. Boom, I go a little further away for these bachelor's. Now the Ivy League is calling me to pay for my master's. So it's like, my thing is that let's not, it's important for us to tell young folks that there are multiple options, but if you if you get the playbook for both, you can find success. Rather than romanticize one over the other and then you end up broken anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, um, and I think, I think my point was more to the the family members that are like raining on the dream, right? Like, like not figuring out in partnership with their young person, how we can get you there and get you prepared, but they're afraid of what going away would mean to their relationship, right? Like that imposter syndrome of like, they're going to go away and get a degree and I don't have one and all yes. of that other sort of trauma that shows up was really more my point because I'm yeah. sitting to you right now on the north side of Minneapolis. I'm, I'm sitting about eight blocks from where I grew up. My husband is three blocks from where he grew up. We both mm-hmm. went to school right in the neighborhood. So I think that, you know, and I think that's the other thing is that, you know, I'm from 55411, the zip code that gets most discussed in terms of problems to solve and schools to fix and, and students to prepare and um, there are so many people from this neighborhood that are doing amazing things, yes. including Prince. <laughs> like yes. Prince was like he practiced like across the street from my house, and and Andre Simone and a lot of black brilliance and community brilliance that have that have um, risen from the concrete, if you will. And um, I just think that we have we have collectively described our neighborhoods as, as hopeless and that we need some charitable action to come in to like fix it. And all we need is ourselves. And all we need is a articulation of the stories of those who've been successful. And like, you know, when you talk, when you talk about you and you talk about your husband, like I, like 
this is one of my quotes that that resounded with folks, but it's a to me it's like a mantra, is that education is not is not a tool for leaving your neighborhood, right? Like education is about being able to get the information to help to improve it. Like it's not a way out. And if everybody's making their way out the hood, who going who going to improve the hood? Matter of fact, and you going through this right now. If everybody making their way out the hood, all it does is lessen the value so other folks come buy it. Now you sitting around like, yo, how the hell they became my neighbor and they bought the whole thing out. And so it's about reinvesting in our communities and reinvesting our communities, not just in like sort of financial sector or real estate, but reinvesting in the young folks to say, yo, get what you get to come back and make this better so that we can all live better collectively. And that, you know, it's, you know, it's the, it's the Afrocentric idea of lift as you climb. At the end of the day, those premises don't lose us. Like Sankofa is real. And if we learn Sankofa in fourth grade, we think of ourselves differently. Yeah, if, if. So, you know, so now we're going to talk about schools a little bit and we've, yeah. talked, to, we've talked about it, but you have, um, you know, I was, I was stalking your Twitter <laughs> a little bit. And so you, uh, someone talked to you about hearing your seven rights that all students should have in a classroom um, yeah. as, as something that was completely brilliant. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to share that with us. Yeah, man, look, the premise behind those rights, these are not rights that Chris Emden made up, right? These are, and here's the thing I want everybody to understand. And particularly for those who are listening who may be from the academic community, there's nothing that you are creating there's nothing that you're making that's gonna save black and brown bodies that does not exist in the imaginations, the hearts and souls of those populations already, period. Let me add a T to the period. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, I, and so if anyone hears something from me that they feel is a jewel, it's cause I got that from the hood and, and, and I have the platform to articulate what I've heard in the hood or heard in the world. And so I have a framework that's a little complex um, and it's ever evolving because everything is always evolving that includes these seven C's of a concept I call reality pedagogy that match up with the seven rights of the body as even articulated in Buddhist tradition um, and the merging of the seven C's of reality pedagogy and the seven rights of the body restores rights to young folks and communities that then folds into practices that should be implemented in classrooms. Okay. The seven C's of reality pedagogy are cogenerative dialogues, conversations that educators must be having with young folks, having with communities about how they're doing and meeting the needs of those communities. You cannot be teaching nobody if they can't tell you like, nah, I ain't like that lesson. Um, this ain't working for me. So cogenerating conversation with communities, with young folks, so they can share with us what their perspectives are and so we can co-construct things to do to make the next experience better. Not the world better, not next year better, like tomorrow. So boom, y'all high five about that lesson. Did I kill that? Was that trash? Did I hurt your feelings? Did you like it? Did you not? Word is how you felt. What are we gonna do about it? We'll come up with something together. We both could do it. We'll do it tomorrow. Like an immediate feedback loop. So cogenerative dialogues, co-teaching, recognizing that those who teach are not those who are credentialed alone that those who teach are those who've been called to teach and those who've been called to teach may not have a teaching license, may not have gone to college, but you hear them talk and give their sage wisdom and you understand that they've been called to teach. And so allow those who've been called to teach to teach the credentialed about how to teach. You know what I mean? So reaching out in that hood and that community to understand who them folks are. There's that one cat on the block. He be there all night long because he hustling. 
but he has an ability to connect to young folks in a way that nobody else understands. Do not write that person off. Do not identify that person as being the worst in the community. That person may be doing what they're doing because they ain't got no other options. But if you gave them the platform, not saving them, the platform to utilize their gift to help young folks be edified, they would do that. And so co-teaching is allowing the hood to teach us, allowing the babies to teach us about how to teach. Cosmopolitanism, creating and constructing community, having schools feel like extensions of community. The extent to which a school is successful is the extent to which that school replicates the social structures of the community that school is embedded in. If the school is that place separate from, we're gonna save them from that community. If they got the same language, the same discourse, the same spots that y'all hang out at, the, the teachers don't go to the same pizza shop the kids go. If there's a separateness about the institution that is not embedded in the social fabric and dynamic of the community, that school is useless. Yeah, I said it, it's useless. Now, this does not mean that you don't hold young folks to loftier goals. It doesn't mean that you don't open up possibilities, but you can do those things without being disparaging to the community where you're physically located. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's cool, Jen. Imagine schools that aren't disparaging to the community, the people they're trying to serve, and the people that support the schools that are supposed to support the kids. That they talk about them as though they're an asset and not a problem to solve. Can you imagine that? You know, I'm not even going to get through all these C's because if I did, like, because you and I could just talk on that. And here's the thing why does it take the activation of the radical imagination to do what is right to do? Like, Sometimes my heart hurts that I have to sit at Columbia and talk about cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism as articulated through the frameworks of Kwame Appiah as an extension of John Dewey's notion of entering the child's mind. When all I really want to say is get the fuck out the building and go talk to the hood. The hood knows how to make this better. Pardon my language. And it's like, it, it hurts. It hurts, to, it hurts to be perceived as radical to do what is right to do. Yeah. It hurts to be ostracized by the intellectual community for knowing what has been glowingly apparent. And so, I don't know, man. Like, I just, I, my, my, my hope, my prayer mm-hmm. is that this moment, sociopolitically, where we are, where we are, where this voice to the articulation of the concept of Black Lives Mattering, where there's an understanding that those who've been called or chosen to, to help us be safe make us feel unsafe, that those who hold political power are children masked by title that our children could not even stoop that low to be. Like in a world where the cloak is being pulled to reveal the hypocrisies in our society, that what you and I are articulating becomes more clear. It's my only hope and prayer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a depth of pain in there, right? And I tell people like being from the neighborhood, like people say, well, you know, Talk to me about what it means to be a woman leader. Okay, I can do that. Talk to you about what it means to be an African-American leader. I can do that. And then I always say, let me talk to you about what it means to be a leader from the North side. Talk. Because there is geographical problems too, right? Where you have created a narrative about a whole neighborhood, a whole community in which you are stripping it from its assets. Mm-hmm. Right? 
as a way to demonize a neighborhood. And then you want to come in and do work. Right. Well, and so you're, you're getting over in your head. You have to be able to reimagine something and get through all of the, I'm not proficient. I'm my neighborhood's bad. Someone's got to disrupt my trajectory. Sis, but that's the cycle. Like you, you, you are articulating so brilliantly and clearly the cycle that I want our audience to hear teachers, young folks, whoever to hear, because you cannot interrupt the cycle unless you face the fact that the cycle exists. The narrative about the underperformance or the lowliness or the inefficiency of a neighborhood is required if there's a financial structure that is based on saving it. You, if they, if they, if, you look, if everybody in the hood passed the test, a billion dollar industry of test prep is gone. If everybody in the neighborhood feels fully actualized, a whole community and scholarly body of work around community-focused interventions is broken. So these cats construct tales of our downtroddenness so they can create industries about our victimhood so they can perceive themselves as savior and make it a generation of income and a generation of status mechanism. Once we understand that, we interrupt by not being complicit in the articulation of the story. Look, if, you are, if you're always telling stories about my downtroddenness, you will always see me as a victim and you will never see me as a victor. And if you make me complicit in the narratives about my downtroddenness, well, damn it, I've done your work for you. I'm your marketing scheme for my brokenness. This is why, look, you know, this is why a, a restoration of our collective humanity is the most essential piece of any revolutionary work. This is why down the line, where you're talking about Malcolm X, or you are talking about Marcus Garvey, you're talking in the global spectrum, you're talking about uh, 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 Franz Fanon, you're talking about Walter Rodney, you're talking, let me bring some sisters in here, you're talking about Septima Clark, <laughs> you're talking about Harriet Tubman, you know, any of those folks, their fundamental piece of their narratives were, Harriet Tubman, they said, historically said, I, I, I freed X, Y, Z amount of slaves. I would have freed so much more if they didn't know that they were already free. Like it's about the psychological work first. And so yeah. any of the folks I articulated so far, if you want to say, what is the thread in Septima Clark, Malcolm X, Walter Rodney, and Fannie Lou Hamer, is that they all collectively understood that when our minds are free and our souls are free, our bodies will follow. And so when you have a school system, that is predicated on not, feeling, not, not feeding the mind, not feeding the heart, and not feeding the sense of self, it's no, there's no question that we're gonna to continue to replicate these cycles of oppression. You know Dr. Howard Fuller. Yes. Right, and so, you know, Harry Tubman, right? Like we would have freed more if they known they were slaves. And then Howard is definitely known for saying like, you know, my goal is to free all the slaves, but in the meantime, <laughs> Right. I'm going to get all of them I can get. Right. Yep. Like if my job is only to get 10, that's what I'm going to do. Right. Like I'm taking his words and expanding upon them. But I think that there's such an important understanding of both um, our ability to be in the work and understanding the victimization that we have had as a, as, as as we're we're moving. Right. We're, we're in these spaces where we both have been victimized and we're also creating space for others that that hopefully are not being going to be victimized, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that you approach schools and young people um, is through a point of view that I think is is very necessary for others to hear about. 
And so um, you you have brought hip hop to the classroom, hip hop to the sciences. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about how how you you got there with that and what it has done to how you see teaching? Everything. So I'm gonna say this for, like when I was in high school, and you know, no shade to my high school, it was a great school, and you know, it was a specialized public high school. You had to take a test to get in, all that. Um. The thing I looked forward to the most every single day was the cipher in the cafeteria. Like that's sometimes, some days that's why I showed up. Like I showed up to be on the seventh floor of that huge building while my friends created beats on lunch tables and we freestyled. And there was something about the rhythm, the camaraderie, the connectedness, the creativity, the imagination, the thoughtfulness, the critical listening, the critical reflection, the nimbleness that was being embodied in that moment. And I, as an educator, recognize that those same things are what connects young folks to education. And that those things in particular are essential in the sciences. And I also understood, and I came to understand that hip hop artists, are the evolution of the African griots and storytellers that our communities have always had folks who put words together to construct narratives that makes the soul feel free. And our people have always had slaves on slave ships banging chains against the hulls of ships to collective rhythm to escape the oppression of that space. That on the shores of West Africa, they were hitting talking drums to tell stories and narratives and position themselves in circles the way that contemporary hip hop artists do in cyphers. And when you understand the magic of the extension of the spirit of blackness over time, when you understand that on the shores of West Africa or in the hood in Philly, it is brothers and sisters getting together to rhythms to make words and rhyme and tell story. I understood then that this was a part of our collective DNA. As a scientist, I could also recognize that epigenetically, we're, 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 we're epigenetically pre-coded to respond to, to, uh, to, 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 to rhythm. It's a piece of who we are and, and words and prose. And so I understood then that if our babies were underperforming in classrooms and underperforming in science classrooms, it wasn't a function of the absence of their intelligence. It was the absence of the simplicity, the absence of complexity in the approach to the delivery of information in school. Now, I want you to make those, it's important to make that distinction. It is not that the young folks were not able to rise to the expectations of schools, is that the schools were so simplistic in their methods of delivery, it could not capture the complexity of the ways our kids needed. It's like, Can you say that one more time for the listeners in the back? I'm going to try, sis. Yeah. It was, it's never been that our babies are not able to rise to the high expectations of schools. It is that they find it difficult bending to the unitary, rudimentary methods of the delivery of information of schools. Like, I'm operating on here. Y'all want me to just sit down and take notes? Yeah. So damn boring. So they're disengaging. Yeah. Like where the, the kids are, the kids are saying to the teachers, like, um, so so where, where's the artistic piece? Like, when am I moving my body? When am I reflecting deeply? When am I being creative? When am I drawing connections? Like they, they are neuroscientifically operating on such a higher plane that is challenging to divorce myself from my high thinking, to low myself down to just taking notes and listening to you. 
And so all I'm doing with the hip hop approach is challenging schools to catch up to where the hood already is. Like, listen, y'all, we rhyming, freestyling, got rhythms, making connections, drawing connections, thinking forwardly. Like, how about y'all consider something a little bit more advanced for once? And as the schools slowly start catching up, they're getting closer to match up to the interests of young folks. They're not there yet because the young folks are still operating on a higher plane. And so in my work, we've had young folks, and I had a kid literally write a rhyme about the whole damn science textbook, which required them reading the textbook. Mind you, he wouldn't do three pages of homework before because it wasn't functioning on the intellectual stimulation plane he was at. And now he's smashing the test through these bars because these bars is heavy, my G. Like, and so, so for me, it's, again, it's, it's training teachers and training schools to catch up uh, to, the, to, the, to the intellectual veracity of, of black and brown folks and utilizing hip hop as a catalyst for that, for that process of catching up. Yeah, so let's let's unpack that just a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. number one, you reminded me as as a student, you know, at North High School, and you know, granted, I was in an advanced program, but I was not a great student, mm-hmm. right? And and the classes that weren't necessarily advanced, I wasn't necessarily sitting in them, right? I would leave, right? So I'm leaving, and I remember having a, a long conversation with my dad, and he's like, "So let me get this right. You're leaving the class. You're skipping class. Yes, you're skipping class to go to the library." Yep. Why? Because I love to read. <laughs> right. Like, And I can find more in these books and I get more from the librarian who's engaging me while I'm not in class mm. and giving me books about the class I'm supposed to be sitting in. And I'm getting more information from doing it this way than I would have if I would have sat there. Right. Mm. So I'm not I'm not recognize. I'm, I'm going to recognize that I probably should not have been that student. But But what I'm saying to you is that I will often say to people, I was a smart kid that was in a school that didn't recognize it. Facts. That's a whole word. And there's a lot of them. Right. And as my mom and I, I, you know, I recently lost her, but, you know, saying and and she's like, don't you need to be reminded. There's a lot of smart people that are sitting in jail. Mm. Right. There are brilliant people that did not have the opportunity or the nurturing. And we confuse that with them not being brilliant and smart and capable. Mm. Right. Like there's other things that are at play here. And so when you are talking about. Hey, says, can I cut you off real quick? I, I, yeah. I, I, I know you had a question. I just, I just want to. I, I, that's, how, that's how I move. Yeah. Um, I wanted to stop for a second. And can you just take a deep breath with me in? And out. And in one more time out in and hold it a little bit and then I want to say I want to honor the spirit of your mother that you recently lost that we will not mention her and keep engaging in conversation but we will mention her and honor her what she's done to bring you to where you are how you are the living embodiment of who she wanted you to be, how with your time left on this planet, you will continue to make her proud and move towards her grandest visions and may her soul rest in eternal peace and power. Amen. Yeah. 
Amen. Thank you for that. It's been it's been a it's been a time. I can imagine. I can imagine. Time. It's been a time. And so, um, so, you know, what, what my question was is that you're saying that the schools need to catch up with the students, mm-hmm. but the schools think that the kids aren't proficient and therefore right. they're deficient. And so there's a framing problem. There's a reality problem. There's a gap in understanding. Um, there, there's something here Right. And so it goes into the way in which we um, uh, have defined and articulated success based on capitalism. Right. The test. And so, you know, and and I, you know, I'm not sure the test was designed to be used in the way it's being used. To, was to not. <laughs> well, can we talk about that then? It wasn't. It was not. I mean, then, 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 first of all. Any assessment that only captures the expression of intelligence in one mechanism is a faulty assessment. It's number one. Number two, any assessment that's being used to assess the intelligence of a young person that is not considered a variable of the interest of the young person in what is being assessed is already automatically inaccurate. So for example, if I go to a school in the community and I give them a test to see how proficient the kids are, the information I'm receiving from that assessment is fundamentally flawed because the young folks are not performing in a way that is based on their interest on the assessment. So it, the, the assessment is inherently flawed because the variable of student interest and passion has not been included into the mechanism for the assessment. So, because here's the thing, even an assessment that's, so let's say, let's say you're like, okay, this is the assessment. We acknowledge that it doesn't capture the complexity of the experience. We recognize that it is inherently biased against different ways of knowing and being, but let's just say the kids got to pass the test though. Even in that instance, even in that instance, the method of the preparation of the young folks for the information of the test inhibits them from being able to showcase their full intelligence on the test. You know what I mean? Like, so, so, so then the variable has to be their interest. Then the pedagogy then must shift. So the pedagogy then has to shift. If the, if without a pedagogical shift, you cannot capture accurately the content knowledge of the person who's taking the assessment. That's what I'm saying. And I think all these nuances are just absent from the discourse around how we equate intelligence or lack thereof, the whole joint is just flawed. Another thing is like, yeah, I mean, it's broke, fam, it's broke, it's broken completely. And, and you know, for me, it's like what it does to the ego to a young person. So first of all, they don't want to take a test. Then they take it and then everybody says, it's the be all and end all. This tells you who you are for life. Um, and then there's sort of internal damage that's being done. Um, and, and I'll tell you this part, which is really intriguing for us to sort of name, uh, most people who do well on the test, like think about you when you went to school. The kid who smashed all the tests, got all the A's, was perfect on everything. Where are they now? <laughs> Yo, it's a real question. Let's uh, all ask uh, ourselves uh, that. Like, that's the D student stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's like let's keep it a buck. The ones yeah. that everybody's trying to follow, they're the best at this. They got all 90s, all 100s. Because guess what? Sometimes the kid who finds the most success in traditional schools is not the strongest child. It's the one that's most complicit to, to, to identifying and naming and performing somebody else's norm. I would argue the weakest kids are oftentimes the most successful. Oppress me more. Give me more information. Let me just do what you say. Let me spit it back out. No, 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 no. Now I got a 90. You know how many valedictorians I know that have dropped out of school, switched majors, can't figure themselves out? They spent their whole entire life being affirmed, not for thinking critically, not for being smart intelligence, but for regurgitating somebody else's information and playing passive. And I got a whole paper about this, but I'll, you know, 
I'll say for another time. And that's just in our own lifetimes. But let's, let's also think about this historically. Anybody who's done anything to change the world, let's say you're into tech, you know, you talk about the, you know, the Gateses, or you're talking about the Einsteins, or you're talking about whoever they are. None of them cats was great at school because we've learned really quickly that school is about teaching folks how to be docile, teaching folks how to be able to memorize and spit back out. And by the way, why are we still teaching kids to memorize stuff when we all got iPhones and we can just Google whatever the hell we want? The skill set at this point is creativity, application, connection, innovation. Memorizing is stupid. This is not going away. This device can give me more information. The first computer is about the size of the room I'm in times 10. This does more than that, that computer. I'm not, why am I bothering young folks and regurgitating something they have direct access to if my intention is not just blind complicity? Mm -hmm. Well, wait, so, okay, let's go with that because I have um, experienced uh, teachers and I have five kids. I've been in a lot of schools. I, I used to say I've been in every school system except for homeschooling and the pandemic has kind of changed that. Now you've done that too. <laughs> right, like private, charter, all of it. I've been through it. I have lots of, lots of feedback and, and real life experience in that, right? But in these times, I've had teachers call and say, well, you know, have you checked the parent portal? Or have you done this? Or I've had teachers say, well, I really don't really know how to use. They don't even know how to use some of the technology that's available for them as teachers, right? So what brings me to the point is that the only way that schools can really advance to what we're talking about is if the way teachers are taught changes. Absolutely. Not just they relate to students, because that's really important to the culture. Like I said, we were going to get to, we've been getting to it in, in an in a ongoing way in this conversation, but- well, how do you think that we should be thinking differently about how we educate those people that want to be in front of our kids? I, I, we need to expect from them what we're saying that they should be doing for young people, period, in schools of education. And people ask me all the time, you know, why, why, do, why am I still an academic? Like, why am I still in higher education? For that reason alone. My heart is with young folks. My heart is in communities. But I, I've got to do this work from the vantage point of higher ed because I get a chance to, to work with aspiring teachers Teach, people who are teaching right now and those who are training to get their doctoral degrees to be training teachers. And for me, I knew that if I took this, a couple steps back, I can create more of a web. And there's some things you could do differently. I mean, the first is, you know, teach education programs just like, look, just like classrooms. They come in there, they learn some theory, they memorize it, they write final papers, they keep it moving. Um, there's no piece of it that's about reflection. I, in my, my courses, we open up with helping my teachers to understand who they are. And if need be, whose they are. But that's a whole other conversation. But who you are, what brought you to teach? Who was your favorite teacher? Who was the teacher you hated the most? When you are teaching, are you closer to the person you hate or the person that you loved? Why did you love them? Why did you hate them? Who do you aspire to be? What do you, think, what do you see teaching as? Is it activist work? Is it replication work? Are you relying more on lesson plan or relying more on young? Like just asking them questions to question, asking them questions is a metacognitive kind of thing. Asking them questions to question why they're doing this and what their practice is. Because oftentimes, you know, back to the broken people, break people, they've been broken themselves. You know, like, yeah. and it's a societal thing, you know, like societally, we don't value teachers. You know how we don't value black and brown children? We don't value teachers. You're like, oh, you know, I, like, I, so science is about training, blah, blah, blah. I go to work with my friends who's still in the sciences, whatever. Yo, Chris, you still doing that work with the, with the schools and the kids and all that? You are? 
you know, oh, you're such a good person. Oh, like I literally now I get an oh, like that's so nice, it's so sweet. Like no one recognizes the intellectual veracity of understanding the complexity of delivering information to other people. I think societally we do that. And so when you devalue teachers, they don't have value in themselves. So they don't go train themselves. Like teachers don't see themselves as needing to go and develop their practice. Like teachers don't, like my, my teachers, they record themselves while they teach. They go back and watch game tape. Like I tell my people, like you don't LeBron, you don't LeBron James in your classroom, fam. You can't just go practice and go play. You gotta go and watch game tape. Oh man, look at that point right there. I can ask that question. I can ask this question instead. Then I can ask that person. Rewrite the playbook. Like you gotta love, you gotta love what you do. Like when I give keynotes, I give a keynote talk, I leave it alone for a bit. I go back and watch my old keynotes from 2017. Oh man, Chris, that, that metaphor ain't hit. That analogy was kind of whack. Yo, yeah, this one story, you should put that in there. And that's what I did in the classroom. And so teaching teachers to be reflective teaching them to be nimble, teaching them to be innovative, and teaching them to be able to understand that education is a localized enterprise. It was never intended to be standardized. So when you standardize your teaching, you can't bend it to the kids in front of you. You know what I mean? So that's that one, teacher education. What about critical race theory, right? We have we have uh, teachers that are going into classrooms and neighborhoods that they are unfamiliar with. And so is there a responsibility, you think of higher ed, to be thinking critical race theory and to allow our, our, our new teachers and, and teachers that are continuing their education to get familiar with neighborhoods from inside? Look, before theory with, I, I absolutely agree. Like, you know, the folks I love the most in the world our academics in that world. Oh boy, you hear my son? Yeah. Malcolm, can you give daddy about five minutes, please? A little bit longer than five. Thank you, son. Um, of course, his name is Malcolm. <laughs> oh yes, it is. Look, I, I give him his name is his name is Malcolm Xavier. <laughs> oh wow, Malcolm X. I'm loving it. Yeah. Loving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so um, so I look the folks I love the most have constructed these amazing theories about education. Like truly, and I, I firmly believe that teachers need to be aware of institutional racism. They need to be aware of critical race theory. They need to be aware of white guilt. They need to be aware of all those dimensions of how race has constructed their identity and how that might play out in the classroom. I'm gonna say something a little radical here with you though. That work in the absence of what to do with it is dangerous. I don't want my teachers deeply aware of critical race theory and then holding on to all this white guilt and angst and then I go unleash them on my babies. Yeah. I, I need you to understand critical race theory. I need you to understand the role of whiteness. I need you to understand white supremacy. Then I need you to understand what you do pedagogically to address that every single day. Because otherwise, listen, we got a whole bunch of teachers right now. Oh my gosh, anti-racism. Oh my gosh, I'm bad. Oh my gosh, I'm carrying on myself the depths of my ancestors and grandfathers and blah, blah, blah. And then they go in the classroom to a bunch of black kids and, and pensive and can't connect and, and, and they suck. So awareness of the frameworks is not enough. Awareness of the frameworks and then arming them with strategies to be able to implement practices to undo those histories is essential. And I think collectively in the world of education right now, because education, they, they move in waves. Like this stuff is so hot, like anti-racism, cultural relevance, critical race theory. Like, you know, you, you go into an education conference, you, you throw a quarter, you go hit somebody who says critical race theory 15 times. And, and while I appreciate the progress 
we have to understand how that, that introduction to the theoretical work without emerging in the authentic pedagogical daily work yeah. can do violence on young people and do violence on a teacher. And the people they work with. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, our time is, is, is nearing its end and we didn't get through all the C's. So if, if someone wanted to go and find the other four C's, where would they go? Thank you, sis. So y'all, I wrote a book. Uh, the book is entitled For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the rest of y'all too. Um, it is available wherever books are sold. So if that's your local bookstores or, you know, your Amazons or wherever else. So please do that. And I will say this, and this is actually the first time I'm sharing this publicly. So this is a little jewel. I've written a book entitled Ratchetemic. Um, and Ratchetemic is now on the low on pre-order on Amazon. So if you go on Amazon and you type in uh, Christopher Emden, Ratchetemic, you can actually pre-order. Literally, it's the first time I'm sharing publicly that it's on pre-order. Um, you can pre-order Ratchetemic, which in many ways... Uh, puts in word and much more detail and nuance some of the major concepts that we um, that we had that we discussed today. Yeah. If if I ask you to, if you would send me a signed copy, would you do that? Done and done. Oh, awesome, awesome! I'd like to be able to have that on my shelf behind me. That's love. Uh, and, and with me, I, I appreciate it. I could see that. Um, Again, you have you have the book. You have a new book that's coming out that people can do on pre-order. You have your TED Talk, um, and and you love our city, so we hope to have you back when travel is 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 available again. But I I just wanted to acknowledge like the depth, like there, like we could literally have five more of these conversations because we've hit on some really big things. Yeah, and um, I hope that that the listeners continue to think about what does it mean to be relevant in education and to know the students and to see their brilliance and know that your job is actually to keep up with their brilliance. That's right. Right. Like if, if nothing else, your job and education's job is behind where our kids are. The kids know it. Parents know it. And now we got to get the system to understand what it needs to do to get caught up. And, and we talked about narrative, right? The importance of narrative, both positively, who do they need to know? Who do they need to see and have access to that shows them that they, they are this person, they're an extension of me. Um, but narrative is also not good when you are being uh, developed by your deficiencies, right? You're being indoctrinated into, I'm not proficient enough. I'm not good enough. I don't fit here. And so narrative, right? What are we doing to the psyche of our children? Which direction do we want them to go in and do our behaviors and our practices get them there? Mm. And if not, you need to interrupt it and find a new path. Mm. And so this is, this is an exciting conversation at the foundation. We're happy to be one piece of trying to figure out how we get our schools caught up to our kids. How do we provide them the space that nurtures, honors, respects, and, and, and develops, right? Nurtures in partnership um, and, and co-learning, co-teaching yes. uh, ways, right? That, that waters those seeds so that they can grow up and, and, and spread more into the communities that we love and care about. So I thank you. I'm going to let you get to Malcolm Xavier. Yes, Bless yes. You. Sister, you are light. You are light, so insightful and so thoughtful. 
and such intelligence and grace. And um, I'm now I got to go check out all your other podcasts so I could be a fan, yeah. you know what I mean? As well as be a guest so I can go uh, geek out on those other interviews. But thank you so much for creating space for me um, and wishing you all the best and wishing you good healing um, in this season. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good weekend. All right, peace. That's Dr. Christopher Emden and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Want to know who's next? Follow Shonda on Instagram at Shonda S. Baker or visit conversationswithshonda.org. This is Sue Potkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.